So welcome. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Rich. Uh, theoretically. <laughs> this is a different one. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I have a collection. <laughs> I know, but I'm just really. This is a Cooperman. It's a different brand. Yeah. Look at this beautiful drum. Okay. This is actually designed by my bandmate. Wow. So, yeah, this is, this is, each one sounds very different. They have, all have different resonances. So. Yeah. yeah. And what material is that? This is just a synthetic drum head. Uh -huh. Yeah. It's made of plastic, I guess. I don't know. Some kind of synthetic. So, um, I guess we could chant the who, maybe? Sure. Whatever your impulse is. So, you remember who? Just, Some people have a bit word here for that. So oh, we'll okay. So, who, um, who in Arabic is kind of like called the name of essence, one of the 99 divine names. Um, traditional in, in a Sufi zikr to chant la ilaha illallah, which means there's nothing but God or no God but God, Allah being like the proper name of God, and then who is kind of like the, they, they call it this uh, ismi zat, like the name of essence, so it's like the most, one of the more powerful names. So. Those who know Hebrew, ismi, shem, shem is Hebrew for name, uh, so, and who is he? H is the H the pronoun he. So uh, when we sing on Yom Kippur, Adonai Hu Ha Elohim, God is God. That's what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So we can just say like, Ooh. and the idea with this chant is to kind of, with every breath, just almost like you're chanting Om. So you take a breath in, and then the breath out is the who, and just keep going at your own pace. Don't worry about keeping up with anybody else or anything. So.
we say in Hebrew, Baruch Haba, or Brucha Haba'a, which means blessed are those you who enters here. Thank you. Into this sanctuary that we're creating with our intention. place of curiosity and openness. Welcome back to Matthew, who took a trip of another trip of a lifetime, it sounds like. We're gonna, I wanna get, I'm going to ask him to tell us something about it. Before we enter into our, our um, uh, topic for the day, on the front of the New York Times today, Muslims and Jews combating hate. This happens to be Barbara Brightman, who was one of the witnesses at my wedding with Ellen. Uh, she's an amazing friend. So that was a nice surprise. Uh, 500 women, Muslims and Jews, for the sisterhood of Salam Shalom, met at Drew University yesterday, um, coming together to combat hate. Carol and Susan went down. Um, Will you give us just a, uh, what do you say in Yiddish, a forspice? Uh, <laughs> like uh, a taste? It felt like what we just chanted. <laughs> it, it, it was an amazing, it was, the normalcy of it was palpable. That we can meet in a room with um, Muslims and Jewish women. The fact that with mostly women, there were a couple men sprinkled, uh, you know, every once in a while you need a shot of testosterone, I guess, but um, the intention of which was to move us forward um, away from what's happening politically and into each other's arms. Wow. Wow. Is there a follow-up to this? It's an organization. It's an organization. It's and called the Sisterhood of Salam Shalom. And they have a chapter, from what we understand, in Albany. Which, which, which I'm going to check out. I've heard a little about this. Oh, good. Mishka is involved, uh, oh. I believe. Okay. Who is? My friend Mishka. Oh. So anyway, it's, and Carol, do you want to add anything? That was perfect, Susan. I think that the, the thing that... Besides sit, just sitting there in that room and knowing that I could go up to any woman sitting in that room and be in love. I mean, that's what we were. We were there to be in love. Wow. Um, but, the, but also incredibly profound. I can't remember her name. Robbie. Robbie Damalian. Who is originally a South African woman who has lived in Israel for many years and whose son was in the military, killed by a sniper a number of years ago. And her reaction was to create an organization. Parents, circle of parents. Yeah, mostly for parents. mothers, I think, yeah. but, but uh, for Israeli and Palestinian people who have lost children. And she has a film that we're gonna try and get. Uh, where they, they're just sitting and talking to each other, and it was just, I, I was, it was amazing. Um, and and that, was, that, was, that was the piece that, you know, that stands out, but that was not everything that went on. 
Thank you. you. Let me just say, in this film, you watch hatred turn to transform into love. It's, it's amazing. So, and I love how you said, Susan, how normal it, it felt, and yet we're all aware of how abnormal it is uh, for this to be happening, even though it's, hap it's happening in a lot of places, and how precious the United States and our culture is of the idea that we can get along. And so uh, it's an important time. I can see why they felt compelled to make this happen. Well, they, it's, it's a their third, third, year. third conference. Mm -hmm. The first one there were 100 people, the second there were 200 people, and yesterday there were 500 people. 500. And the phone was ringing off the hook after the election. That's of course. That's really important. <clears throat> right. Right. And Cory Booker showed up. Yes. Oh. Thrilling. Cory Booker is yes. a senator from New Jersey. Yes. Thrilling. And we didn't know that. He was not supposed to, but this woman, Robbie, somehow said, you should come, and he came. So it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. Um, and he spoke so beautifully and eloquently um, about the gathering and about the whole thing. And it, it's very hopeful. Thank you. Thank you. Kathy? No. There's a, um, this is Kathy Wood. Hi, everybody. I'm Kathy Wood. I, I actually got this from a friend <coughs> of mine by the name of Cheryl Kumar, and I've done a little bit of research on it, but not a lot. There is a group called Jewish Voice for Peace, and it has now a Hudson Valley chapter, and they're going to be meeting at the corner of North Front and Wall Street in uptown Kingston from 4 until 5.30 on December the 21st. And they'll be holding up signs in the shape of a Hanukkah menorah proclaiming that none, number one, will not be silent about anti-Muslim and racist hate speech and hate crimes. Two, they condemn state surveillance of the Muslim, Arab, and South Asian communities. Three, they challenge institutionalized racism throughout the word, through words and actions. They fight anti-Muslim profiling and racial profiling in all of its forms, call for an end to racist policing, stand against U.S. policies driven by the, quote, war on terror that demonizes Islam and devalues targets and kills Muslims. We stand strong for immigration and refugee rights, welcome Syrian refugees. We honor and support indigenous rights and resistance led by the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe to protect their land and water. So it's a, it's a bringing together, I think, of, of pretty much what we're doing here. So Kathy asked if she could let you know about that. If you want to know more, you can see her after the class, and she'll tell you. December the 21st, again, from 4 until 5.30, North Front and Wall Street. And I've got their flyer for anyone who's interested. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Um, Matthew was just in Egypt with Yannick for uh, uh, a long-awaited vacation, right? <laughs> um, Egypt, but, is a country with the, one of the most ancient, uh, earl, the earliest Christian community. Are the cops the earliest, would you say? Very, yes, very early, very early. Who still make up 10% of the Egyptian population. And of course, it's a Muslim country, a proud Muslim country. So do you want to share anything about what you did there? Sure. Um, <laughs> how many of you have been to Egypt? Okay, so some of you have been. Like five of them. Uh, it, was, it was truly an amazing experience, uh, in part because of the way 
all of these traditions became a continuum. That there was wasn't there weren't sort of rigid, clear demarcations. You could see in the art as the early Christian community began emerging in the sort of what's now the Coptic quarters. Um, that the and they've taken pieces of art from some of the early desert monastic communities and brought them in. And you see the way the Egyptian style um, of art is morphing into Christian art. And then you see the way that begins morphing into Islamic art. Mm. And um, there is a, a, a small Jewish presence, but there's not... In, in the Coptic... Christian part of Cairo, um, behind the old Roman walls, there are a number of Coptic churches. There's a, a still an active um, convent there, but there's a synagogue, and the synagogue is no longer active. And it's a beautiful, beautiful synagogue. And I, I actually started to cry when I was in the synagogue because I felt it was like the space was aching to be prayed in, that this community was missing. These other communities were all here, and this community wasn't present. Um, and the story was that this Jewish community there, and, and this all merges into legend, you know, of course, it gets all murky, but um, the story in the, the Christian Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew, is that uh, Joseph and Mary, when, uh, when she gives birth to Jesus... Uh, King Herod, there's a, a massacre, a slaughter of uh, boys under two years old. So it's an echo of the, the Moses story. And the story is that they fled as refugees into Egypt to protect the baby. And so there's a church there, very close to the mosque there. And the story is the cave under the church is where Mary and Joseph lived as refugees with a pre-existing Jewish community there. They went to their people in Egypt and lived among them. So you get to go into this cave where they hid for three months, and there's a well, and it says this is the well that they drank from. Um, and uh, just being in the place where those stories lived uh, was really powerful. Uh, the other amazing thing was the, the way the ancient Egyptian spiritual tradition was part of the continuum with the monotheistic traditions. And the way Egyptians, Muslim Egyptians, are proud of their ancient Egyptian heritage. And um, I, I saw this so clearly in, the, there's a mosque in Luxor that's built in the ruins of an ancient Egyptian temple. And so you go into this mosque, and the prayer hall is still lined with Egyptian hieroglyphs and, you know, images of the pharaohs. Wow, wow. And the hieroglyphs are around the columns in, yes. the, in the mosque. And you walk outside the mosque, and right there is a big statue of, of the pharaoh. Um, and with current fundamentalist Wahhabi, Salafi yeah. Muslims who yeah, are blowing they... up mm. these ancient, ancient sites, sites, defacing um, these, these sites, to see that this early Muslim community felt no need to destroy it, they just incorporated it. Yeah. Um, that, that was part of the, the spirit of the tradition. Um, Another interesting thing, in the, the Valley of the Kings, you go into the old tombs of the pharaohs, and, as you, and they're dug straight into the rock. Uh, so it's these you know, deep tunnels that go down into the rock, and they're lined with hieroglyphs, um, with images of deities and uh, various you know, animals, creatures. And the, the ceiling is painted with deep blue and with gold stars. And you'll see the goddess Nut 
her body stretching yeah. the length of the ceiling. And at one end, she'll be swallowing the sun. And you see the sun journeying through her. And it's, it's the cycles of, of night and day. And uh, I was in a mosque. And the, the woman, uh, a local woman who's a friend of a friend who was showing us around, she said she had a group in the mosque once. And a little boy pointed up to the ceiling of the mosque and said, look, it's Newt. And it was the exact same color patterns in the mosque. It was the deep blue ceiling with the gold lettering that was the same in the ancient temple, the deep blue ceiling with the gold lettering. And she said, well, yeah, it is. It is still her. Um, uh, but, but the sense of the way the Egyptians saw these deities, that they weren't just, you know, little clay figure gods. It was deeply mystical, like Nut was the all. You know, she was the all-encompassing goddess who was the cycles, the seasons. Um, so, so it, it, was, it, was, it was truly amazing. And, and um, the, some of the real places of power were the mosques that had a Sufi saint um, mm -hmm. buried in the mosque. It's a tradition to have the, the tomb, the shrine of the saint, in the mosque. And um, Ahmed al-Rafai, who mm. founded the Rafai lineage of Sufism, uh, he's there in a mosque. And there were dervishes in the mosque chanting uh, Elahi's devotional songs, and you could just feel the air was just thick with, with love and devotion in that place. Um, <coughs> hmm. and, and the head of Imam Hussein, so the head of Imam Hussein, who's the grandson of the, one of the grandsons of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, who, was, who was beheaded, uh, he stood against an unjust ruler and he was killed. Uh, his head is also in Damascus, so. Oh. <laughs> um, so whether or not this is really his head, people have gone there's a, on There's a Yiddish saying that you can't dance at two weddings, you know. Right. <laughs> um, but whether or not it, it's really his head, it's really his head, because people have prayed there um, so, so long. And that was another place that was just thick, palpable presence um, in, that, in that shrine, so. Anyway, yeah, so, I'm rambling, but it well, was... Well, so how are you going to consolidate what you just experienced anyway? I, I'm glad you're rambling. It was I, like three different trips in one because of the three different cultures, the wow. ancient Egyptian, the Jewish, and the Christian. Um, and, and yet, the boundaries between them all felt permeable, continuous. And the boundaries were once much more permeable. Um, Joya? It's a perfect thing you've said for us because... In one group, it is the literal thing and metaphysical. You see it. Mm -hmm. In another, it is only it is the archetypal. Mm -hmm. So you say, "Oh, the blue and gold." It's it's Nurtich herself. Mm -hmm. So that is exactly how we think, but we've forgotten. Right. We've often forgotten that the two are really one, one. Mm -hmm. and that's why we've lost God and all these things. Right. But you've said it, and that's how it is. Right, and it's important to say that the synagogues are vacant in Egypt because. After Israel was founded and Gamal Abdel Nasser came to power, the Egyptian Jewish community, which was an ancient and venerable community, were, as in so many of the other um, Middle Eastern countries, forced out. And the fabric of a society uh, was ripped. Uh, now, remember, this is comparable to, and during the same time period as when India and Pakistan gained independence, and then there was this massive migration of Muslims into Pakistan and of uh, Hindus into India. A tragedy. 
uh, that all is happening at the same post-war period. So it's not, you can't isolate this. However, um, um, that is what happened to the Jewish community in, in Egypt, is that they were forced to leave. And um, was in, the 50s. in the 50s, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, Miriam, you had your hand up. Mm-hmm. The Shekhinah, the feminine indwelling so presence. Felt like very much, and I know in, in Muslim, you also have, a, um, I don't know what her name is exactly. Fa- Fatima? Fatima, yeah. Is that it? Yeah. In much of, in, you, please sp- speak to this, because uh, one of the things on our uh, uh, agenda later is to talk about the feminine in these traditions. But, um, it seems that one perspective, and we're going to talk more about this another time, is that the human psyche naturally projects and senses both the masculine and the feminine in creation. And there have been patriarchal traditions that have tried to suppress the feminine. Um, but the feminine always resurfaces. It can't not resurface. And so we'll be talking about that more in all these traditions in the future, where the feminine has, gone, has, has been, I would say, suppressed is an appropriate word, and then regardless, it's going to resurface. It's going to re-enter our, our religious imagination. So, but I want to talk about that more in another class. Uh, yes, Susan. So I also want to say that I was at the Muse- Metropolitan <clears throat> Museum, which has this amazing exhibit of um, Jerusalem. Did I we talk about that last yes. time? Did you talk no, about it? Oh, sorry, I wasn't to, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, it's, it's well worth going to. Yes, and other people said yes. the same thing, and I'm planning to go during my winter yeah, break. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I was, were there with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Did I see another hand? Erwin? Uh, uh, um, Correct me if I'm wrong, it's in that Egyptian synagogue that you saw that there is a Geniza, a, a place... Is that the synagogue? You were in the place where... Oh, the, is this the one where they had all the... The Ben Ezra synagogue? Yes, with the old papers and records were hidden behind right. the wall. They just throw them in there because you couldn't destroy it because it had the name of God. And yes. it would be, so yeah, some, yeah. Of, some yes. of you... Yes, do you want to say more about that? No, you can tell. Okay. That is the one. Though. So yeah. because it's a Jewish tradition not to destroy writings that contain this name of God. And in fact, depending on which Jewish community you were in, some even, and this is why there was so much saved in the Cairo Jewish community in the Middle Ages, if it's just written in Hebrew, because Hebrew being the language of the, the, the sacred tongue, the language of creation, then you couldn't destroy it. So depending on the Jewish community that you're in, it, it, this is interpreted differently. In Cairo in the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries, uh, a time when Maimonides was the leader of the Jewish community and the physician to the sultan, and there was an incredible amount of discourse between the Islamic and Jewish uh, philosophers and thinkers, um, the, the Jewish community, therefore, instead of discarding uh, its documents in Hebrew, stored them in a geniza, which means a storehouse, which was in the back of that synagogue. And then if you, if you want to read a couple, there's a couple of great books uh, that came out recently describing this because it's a great archaeological detective story as well. And I'm not going to remember the names of the books. 
Um, one is in the next book series from Shokin. One was called Sacred Trash, and the other was called like Sacred Treasure. I, they had like unbelievably. It's like when two movies come out with the same plot, but you know, some it was just bubbling around. So um, look up Sacred Trash, Sacred Treasure. Sacred I'm not treasure. sure. It's also a novel about it, but I can't remember the name of it, which I read recently. But this is worth knowing for uh, um, because. In, the, in, in a classic Victorian kind of um, detective way, Solomon Schechter, who was a, a great rabbi and scholar who lived in England at the time, got wind of this and went there and managed to retrieve huge amounts of documents from the Middle Ages, from this Kinesia, everything from sacred texts to laundry lists to shopping lists, literally. And... Um, and now more, many parts had already been dispersed, but he rescued a huge amount. It's called the Cairo Geniza. Because of this, a Jewish scholar named S.D. Goitain wrote an incredibly documented history of Jews, the Jews in Egypt, where we get a picture of day-to-day -day life in Egypt in the 10th, 11th, 12th century that you couldn't otherwise have even imagined. And uh, it's worthy of, it's, it's just great. It's just great. So that's what the Cairo Geniza is. From that, we learn all kinds of social history about the Jews in Cairo, Fustat, in that time period that normalized life back then in a way you could never do in a drier history uh, because of all the primary sources we have. It's a great thing. Yes? Oral history has you say, thanks be to God, all the time. And that is what's supposed to be saved in the hearts of every human being, whether they can read or write. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And when we were young, we heard many women, mostly women, old grandmas, always thanking God every few minutes. And it was like, wow, that is, that's the sacred thing. It's the word as well, not just the, but how beautiful that, that, that the written was saved. Yes, that's beautiful. How beautiful. And I have one, one more uh, sort of, uh, other thing I wanted to say, which is last time I mentioned when people were coming in late, I said, can you try to be on time? I just, uh, the reason I got snippy was because I had all the papers here. So then after the class, I realized people can come whenever they want and the, whatever papers we're distributing will be out on the table there. So, and the reason I'm telling you that is I'm, I am at this point where I'm not interested in being on anybody's case about anything. <laughs> Okay? So I don't want anyone walking in here saying, oh, the rabbi's mad, I'm late. I just don't, don't care. So I just got, I just got to, just had a moment there. So, and I mean that. I, I mean that whenever it happens, if I get snippy with you, just tell me, hey, why are you being snippy? And I'll go, um, I'm hungry? I don't know. You know, because I have no interest in doing that. I want you all to feel like you can come in when you come in, and it's Fine, okay? So I meant to say that after last week. Yes? Thank you for that. But in the interest of time, also, can we remember to chant our way home? Mm -hmm. Chant our way home. Oh, we're going to end with time with for a chant. Yes. yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't forget that either. That and we feel it. It's I, I didn't forget that either. So, so let's segue. Because Matthew has been in Egypt, which... Uh, uh, is where the, um, the uh, uh, Gnostic Gospels were 
yes. were dug up. And they're on display in the Coptic Museum. I saw the first page of the Gospel of Thomas and the old leather bindings that the papyrus manuscripts were held within. And yeah, very, um, very cool. In other words, some of the earliest Christian finds where we know, obviously, that the, the Jewish people trace their origins as a people, you know, and where uh, in the story of the Exodus, that it was in, our, in the crucible of our liberation from slavery that we became a people, you know. And uh, so the, 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 the Near East, the ancient Middle East, is such an incredible m melting pot, you know, sort of, um, I don't know what the right best word is, but so many streams and threads interweaving mm -hmm. that we wanted to look at in, while we talk about the life of Muhammad, uh, we also want to look at the context that we can establish with our, you know, whatever, whatever pieces of knowledge we have about the Christian and Jewish influences on the Arabian Peninsula and on the ancient Near East at this time, which is what year again? 570, 570 he's born, 6th century. Um, I was doing a bunch of reading and totally going, oh, of course, of course, of course, I, uh, that should, should have been obvious to me. Um, because Islam, the, 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 new, the new religion that Muhammad frames draws so dramatically on Jewish sources as to, to be stunning. In its, in, its, in its Jewish sort of substrate foundation. Um, and I know less about um, the Christian connections. And I would suspect historically that the fact that the Jews were at that time and continued to be for the re until the 20th century, a people who did not have a political power base and instead, uh, by and large, uh, actually were in discourse with both the Christian and the Muslim worlds. Um, and sometimes that discourse was fruitful and positive, and sometimes it was uh, very deadly for, for the Jews. But the Byzantine Empire was the, it was the um, Holy Roman Empire. It was based in Constantinople, correct? And it, it was in control of, at this time in the 6th century, the um, land of Israel, much of the Middle East, um, certainly Jerusalem. Um, and meanwhile, um, the Persian, the Sassanid, is that what it was called? Zoroastrian, um, was uh, coming from present-day Iraq and Iran, this is before there's an Islam, right? And it turns out that the, the Jews, uh, there were Jewish tribes and Jewish communities all over the Arabian Peninsula. Certainly, there were big Jewish communities in the Persian Empire, in Baghdad and in other cities in Baghdad, where the Babylonian, formerly Babylonia, where the Babylonian Jewish community lived. And there were Jewish communities still throughout the Byzantine Empire. So the Jews were scattered in all these places. And uh, except that I'd never really put the Arabian Peninsula into my consciousness, it turns out 
that there was actually, that there was a king in southern Arabian Peninsula, what would be today called Yemen, who decided to convert to Judaism and created a Jewish kingdom for a short time in the 6th century uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, there were Jewish tribes in Mecca and Medina who were very influential. And so um, uh, in the reading I was doing, um, I understood that Muhammad had a very had a very intimate relationship with the Jewish community of the Arabian Peninsula, and this Jewish community was an influential community. There was no Islam yet, so there were lots of different influences. So um, I wanted to talk about that more from the insights I've gleaned, uh, but I thought we could do it in the context of you describing the life of Muhammad, because it's such a central part of what it means to be a Muslim is to um, tell that story. Isn't that correct? Yes. I think it's important. Do you want to use a microphone? Yes, please. So, um, I'm, I'm not good at memorizing dates, so I will be referring to give you the, the, the dates um, to, to a sheet. But um, the story of the Prophet, peace be upon him, is a very um, little known and actually very inspiring story and many different slants, many different takes on it. Um, he was born in 570 <coughs> AD, or um, actually CE, excuse me, and um, he was born to um, his um, father died actually before he was before he was born. He he never knew his father, and his mother died shortly thereafter. As in many of the, he was born in the city of Mecca. Mecca was pilgrimage sites, and it was going through a big transition because the lifestyle be, sort of before this pilgrimage site got up and running um, in, the, in the way that it was during his lifetime, um, it was a desert culture. Um, there were, val the values were of generosity, of giving, of- Hospitality. Uh, hospitality, yes. It, it was a, and, and throughout the Middle East, this is still a very, very big part of the culture. But in Mecca, things were changing. It was becoming, a tr it was a trading place and a place of pilgrimage and met, many people were making their livings um, accepting pilgrims, being, uh, helping pilgrims and being, um, selling, buying and selling. It was, so there was this tension in Muhammad's lifetime between the culture of the <coughs> desert, the culture of openness, hospitality, but also of devaluing um, certain parts of the population. Um, one of the, um, uh, particularly women, particularly people who are not part of your tribe, there was a lot of um, infighting, it was a very tribal society, um, that was changing to a more urban, more, in a way, globalized um, culture. Some, cosmopolitan to a degree. Cos cosmopolitan to a degree. And Muhammad was born at the crux of this tension. Um, in, a, in a, at a time when uh, 
people were no longer um, sharing. They were no longer, um, there was no longer a sense of supporting the less, um, the weak, weaker members of your community. Um, so, um, oh, so I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, what was the, what was the nature of, what was it, what made Mecca a pilgrimage destination for the tribes of Arabia? It was the Kaaba. It was the, the enclosure, the sacred um, enclosure where the meteorites, um, it had been an ancient um, pilgrimage site, and there were many, actually statues of many, many gods there. Um, and so it was, it was, people came to worship the gods of their ancestors. I think it was 360 different um, deities were um, in, in this sacred enclosure. Including icons of Mary and Jesus. Yes, yes, which were the only ones left after Mohammed uh, uh, sort of took over Mecca. Um, so that was the, that's the setting. Um, wow. And yes. I, I, I may have missed this, but um, when there was that change from uh, a culture of generosity, it didn't get out of I, th I think I think the the city grew up in um, you know and it and it became more and more populated and and people just became more um, greedy more um, intent on uh, get getting power over others getting there was there was less of a sense of um, the need to take care of each other. What, what I'm hearing, Ruth, and then. Uh, why don't you go first, uh, Lenore? That's Lenore. Mecca, the Al Qibit in Arabic, was central to many, many things in pre Muslim, in pre Islamic culture. And it's very well known for what we're known as the hanging poems. The great, great, in, in classical Arabic, what is so famous are, is the poetry of pre Muslim Arabia. And it's stunning, incredible poetry. And what these guys would do, and they were not, um, they didn't live in cities, these were, in essence, the Bedouins. They would, they would come in and they would leave their poems on El Kebbe, and people would read them, and they set the standard, basically, for Arabic. And, and anybody who studies Arabic and wants to read this has to learn, it's like learning ancient Greek, in essence. So this was an extraordinary place. What happens is it becomes wealthy. It is on the trade route. It has this market, which becomes ultimately what happens when Muhammad goes to Yathrib, which becomes Medina. There's also this market, and it was a competitive market. But they're becoming very wealthy, as well as the extraordinary influence, because the Persians and the, and the Byzantines have been fighting each other by proxy in Arabia. So there's enormous influence. There's Ethiopian influence from the Coptic community. So lots of things are starting to change, and it becomes right, very, very dynamic. And his family not only is wealthy, but they own land outside of Arabia. They're moving up and down the trade routes. So enormous, I mean, very, very exciting things are happening at the point that he's then born and, and comes of age. Wow, so it's, it's a time of, thank you, Lenore. And, and what can we learn about the, the, the pre-Muslim 
religion of the Bedouin Arab tribes. It's an animist. It's a. It's it. What do we know about it? You want to say more, Lenore? Well, I, you know, I, I'm not sure. It's very hard to know because this is now oral culture. Remember, it's a very, very oral culture. Yeah. And when you um, look at the literature, um, and it, it, it reminds you very much of what's so much basic Semitic culture, generosity, protection of the stranger, a sense of belonging to where you come from, which is how you identify yourself, the alliances that go across sibling lines, not parent to child, but horizontally that become incredibly, that are sustained. Um, I'm trying to think. Heroism, too, I think. Yes. Just this, this culture of um, kind of a raiding culture in a sense yes. that they they would do these um, you know kind of raids on each other's right, right, tribes. Right. And that was that, that that sort of back and forth, which where you had all these alliances. And as Jonathan said, there were more sophisticated tribes up um, more as you get to the northern Jordanian desert that were Christian um, later, by the way they become Muslim. But you also had again, uh, Jewish-influenced tribal groups and Coptic-influenced um, you know, um, tribal groups. But all of that sense, and then you had local deities, but I, you didn't fight over that. You fought over territory. You fought who protected what other caravan moving or whatever well, et cetera. And that was really one of the issues. Uh-huh. Uh, thank you. So I'm, I'm also hearing that um, the 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 values of a semi-nomadic pre-urban culture that we know about from our Torah of generosity, protecting the stranger, hospitality, loyalty. Once you become urbanized and the market, you know, the and 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 bigger forces take over and wealth starts accumulating, the anticipated results of a breakdown and a vacuum for something new can be experienced. And I would say that that can compare to Jerusalem at the time of Jesus as a similar story of a city that had become truly a massive pilgrimage site. If you study Jerusalem in the, at the time of Jesus, it, it was not a backwater. King Herod built a massive pilgrimage site at the Temple Mount, and perhaps a million or more Jews and others who were just into the energy would come to Jerusalem and there would be money changers in the temple courtyard and there'd be tchotchke sellers and there'd be holy water sellers and there'd be Baptist guys and there, right? And so it's just this fertile ground of people where their social structure is being um, um, uh, undone by larger forces and an opportunity. That's sort of what I was hearing from you and I made yes. me think about Jerusalem in the same way. Um, there were also certain aspects of the desert culture that were, certainly to our view, very problematic. For example, it, um, one of the things that often would happen is that baby girls would be left to die um, in the desert. Um, and this this was um, actually, you know, the, the uh, value of human life was, was not seen as equal or equivalent. That's it. There's a beautiful word that Simone Weil talks about brilliantly and beautifully with heart, and it's the Greek word metaxu. The metaxu is that which makes us human, 
And it's the very special things that your tribe has, that your tribe has, that your tribe, your tribe, my, that we all have them. And yet we have something else which makes us human is we carry along our tribal understanding or our metatsu to the others and we share them. We say, well, look, they're so alike here. They're so alike there. Oh, they're different here. Let's look at that. So metatsu is a very fundamental way that humans have of being human. And without which, it is hardly possible to be human. If you give up those values that are so humble and so real and daily, it's very hard to know where you do come together and where. So it's an essential thing that we're talking about. Wow. It's a simple word, but read some Thank you. on it. Metaksu. So it, just like um, if Abraham sends Hagar and her baby, her little boy Ishmael, out into the desert, it's a death sentence. But God shows Hagar a well so that she can thrive. That's, I'm thinking about that same, that same context. Uh, Jay, you want to add something? Yeah, I wonder if you could just help me connect the dots with Jonathan. We're doing our, yeah. You know, with, the, with what Jonathan just said about um, Muhammad's life. Because um, Hagar and Ishmael were sent down into the desert. I have that part. I also have the part where Which is historically a much, much older story. Right. But right. still of the Bedouin culture. Right. That's the first dot. Then I got the end dot in which you told me that Muhammad's parents died when he was a young age. But that, but that lineage, is there a lineage between Muhammad and Ishmael, is there a connection there? Yes, that's supposedly. That's the tradition. That's the tradition. The, the tradition is that it, it's different in the Torah, the Torah in, in, um, in the Islamic um, stories. Ishmael and Hagar go to the Arabian Peninsula. They go to Mecca. That's where they are, and part of the Hajj, part of the pilgrimage, is actually the place where Hagar runs back and forth between two hills looking for um, a well, looking for some, uh, Ishmael has fainted, and she's looking for some sort of water for him. She's afraid he's going to die, and in a, um, an angel comes and uh, shows her Zamzum, the, the sacred well of Mecca, and she's able to um, give uh, Ishmael water and, and, and he thrives. It goes back even farther than that. Supposedly Adam and Eve were separated at the, um, when they left paradise, and they were condemned to wander the world until they came to the site of the Kaaba, and they made love there. And, and, and so this has been a site um, in, in um, Islamic tradition. It's been, it, it goes back to the you know, very so, foundations so, of so, human so beings. So just to be clear, there's a blood lineage. Not no. a blood lineage, but, a, but, it's a, but it, there's a place lineage um, between Ishmael and the Arabic people. There, he's seen as the he's seen as the father of the Arabic people in the same way as Isaac is the father of the Jewish people. It's a blood lineage. It is, it is in that sense understood it, traditionally yeah. as a blood lineage. It's understood as a blood lineage, yeah. but it's so those stories are origin stories. Yes. They're not provable blood lineage yeah. stories. Yeah. And in the Torah, Ishmael is the uh, <coughs> the progenitor of the Arab peoples. Yeah, like in, in Muslim culture, if you see Sayyid before somebody's name, yeah. Sayyid or Sayyidah, 
It means that they're actually physically related to Muhammad. Yeah, by blood. It's traceable, and usually people have documents that show their lineage going back. That show their lineage going back to Muhammad. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that's what that means, Sayyid or Sayyidah. But we don't have that for Ishmael, obviously. Cause uh, <laughs> and the, the tradition is that, that later Abraham does reconnect with Ishmael, and, and they rebuild on the sacred site the Kaaba together and dedicate it to the worship of the one God. And so it had been a site of the worship of God, and by the time of Muhammad, it's become filled with all these other deities. That's the tradition. Right, yeah. right. Right, so keep your, your history hat on one part of your head and your traditional hat on the other, which is one of the things we're doing today. Can, can I interject again, if you don't mind? I, I, don't, I don't need the mic, I'll just shout. But um, what I want to say about that is that, so in, in the reading I was doing, there are many stories in the Quran and in uh, um, the Hadith, in the uh, uh, Islamic uh, tradition, uh, that are about biblical characters. Um, but interestingly, they're not stories necessarily that appear in the Torah. They are stories that are classic Midrash. They are the stories that they are the oral tradition of the Jewish tradition. So there is it, 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 what I was reading about, and correct me uh, or uh, if I'm wrong, is that, for instance, the story about Abraham smashing the idols. Some of you may be familiar with this story. There is the Torah, the Bible, has no story about Abraham smashing idols, right? All it says in the Torah is God says to Abraham, go forth, right? And so there's a huge body of oral tradition in Judaism, uh, often, often called Midrash, which means interpretive literature, uh, that tells stories about Abraham. And Jews who study, grow up in traditional Jewish settings, learn these stories as they learn the Torah. That's what I did in my yeshiva when I was a kid. I was one of those kids, I'm, I'm sure everyone has a story like this, where I learned these stories, and then when I was older, I read the Bible again, like in college, in my Old Testament course, and I said, but wait, where's the part where Satan tempts Abraham and makes a river go in front? I said, what's going on here? Because as a kid, it all went in whole. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Right. So it turns out that these, that Muhammad was conversant in the oral tradition of the Jewish population because he takes so many of these stories are stories that you can trace to the Midrash 98, 100%, except some of the names have been changed sometimes, right? And we're going to talk about that this class later when we talk about Abraham's role in, as each of the traditions sees him, since we're calling this class in the tent of Abraham. So, so much Jewish oral tradition, which I am intimately familiar with, I then read about in some variant in Quranic literature. And I'm fascinated by that because it's not like there is a correct oral tradition. When you study as a modern person the Jewish oral tradition, you will see in different collections of Midrash from different periods and places in the Jewish world the same story told six different ways. So that doesn't mean that he took our story and perverted it. 
You understand what I'm saying? Any more than it means that uh, we, can have, we can have our history hats on and know that succeeding cultures take, o- take over the holy places and the stories of the preceding cultures. It's both a form of co-optation and of colonialization. It's all of that. Think about what we Americans have about Native American stories as our heritage somehow, you know? Um, And yet, it's also just what humans do as one culture supersedes another. They absorb and then reframe. And so Mecca becomes, still is a holy place in the pilgrim site, but becomes something different. Um, And this is true, this is what humans do, I would say. Um, Do you all want to add anything to anything I'm saying? Uh, Just to fill in a little bit of the the Christian context. Please do. um, So Muhammad was uh, familiar with Christianity as it existed in his area. He knew and encountered Christians. uh, And as I said, when, you know, I was there in Egypt, you see the old um, caves of the desert hermits, the desert fathers and mothers. So there was a sort of Eremitic uh, monastic tradition in the area as well. in 325, when Constantine legalizes Christianity, begins hammering out the, the creeds and all of that, there's a reaction against the empire, and some Christians then, in reaction, go into the deserts. They see empire as a corrupting influence on Christianity, so they move out into the desert and start founding a lot of the early desert monastic communities. Um, and so there's a movement to begin essentially standardizing Christianity in the 4th century, but it's not fully taken effect by the time of Muhammad because Muhammad is conversant, uh, or the Quran, we could say, is conversant with uh, Christian, what's essentially Christian Midrash? So stories about Jesus that are not in the Gospels but that exist in Christian apocryphal texts. And so there are stories in the Quran um, that are in early Christian texts but that are not in the Christian Bible. Um, so there's a text called the the Proto-Evangelion, or the Proto-Gospel of Thomas. Um, Not the same as the Gospel of Thomas, which is a collection of Jesus sayings. And this text, it sort of recounts um, the missing years of Jesus, his childhood. So the the Gospel of Luke stops with Jesus around 12 and picks up with him age 30. So this is a sort of fanciful attempt to fill fill in the gaps. And one of the stories in this text is is the young Jesus uh, molding a bird from clay and breathing into it, and it takes life and flies, flies away. And this story of Jesus actually shows up in the Quran, although it's not in the canonical Gospels. Um, similarly in Surah Maryam, there's hold, a... Hold on, remember that one. So what's that remind you of, first of all, from the Bible, where God takes clay and makes a human being and blows into it, and it becomes a living being, the first human being. But in the Jewish tradition, how does that get played out? With the golem, which is an which goes way back to rabbinic times too. So where where a rabbi learns the the uh, the how to pronounce the secret name of God, which is the name that gives life to everything and creates a human being that way. So it's a similar motif. Go ahead. So so anyway, the uh, the Christianity that Muhammad was would have been familiar with was in some ways eclectic. It's not. It wasn't necessarily what we think of today as Christian orthodoxy. Christianity was still very kind of diverse and pluralistic at the time. Um, and 
And the same can be said about the Judaism he encountered. Right. These Arabian tribes were not necessarily, oh, Jewish tribes were not necessarily beholden to any rabbi in Baghdad or in uh, the Galilee. So, so you see Christian monks playing important um, roles at certain points. Like the, there's a story of Muhammad when he's very young and he's with the caravan on a trade route and they stop uh, alongside where a Christian monk, a hermit, is living named Bahira. And uh, he senses that there's someone in the tribe that's important, someone in this caravan. And, and so they all present themselves to him and he says, no, there's someone else. And they go, oh, well, there's, there's Muhammad, you know, over back in the, the caravan. He says, bring him here. And he discovers on his back a, a, a mark that's the, you know, the seal of prophecy is the legend. Um, uh, so probably fanciful kind of legend there, but again showing the importance and the influence of the Christian monastic tradition in his life. Um, his wife Khadija, her cousin, is also a Christian. And uh, so again, these interactions, they, they play and, out. And, and he's very important after Muhammad's first revelation when he's completely freaked out. Um, it's his wife Khadija and this cousin that um, encourage him to, sh to um, believe in his own revelation. They're extremely oh, wow. important. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there's a, there's a verse in the Quran that says that the, 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 the closest to you in friendship uh, are those uh, who call themselves Christians because there are, those among, there are uh, monks and priests among them who are... are um, who are humble and, uh, what is the word, who are not arrogant and who are humble, something like that. And, and actually, the Quran also has passages, a passage where um, Muslims are enjoined to protect not only mosques, but synagogues and churches. Wow, wow. Amy, and then Erwin. Um, <clears throat> you, had, um, um, you were talking about the... Uh, the life of Muhammad, and you know, kind of stopped. She didn't stop. We interrupted her. <laughs> yeah, right. and, and then you, you now mentioned his first revelation, so I was wondering. Yeah. What well, maybe, I, maybe I should. So back to the story. I'm going to try to um, go, go sort of quickly through you know, just a few beautiful, bullet beautiful. points. Yeah. So Muhammad is sent off as a young baby um, away from the corrupting influences of Mecca, like when he was two, to a wet nurse um, whose name is Halima. He's brought back um, at, he's brought back around the age of seven, and then his mother dies. So he's now an orphan. Hmm. He's raised by his grandfather first and then an uncle. And um, then he's... Um, skipping over several years and many of the stories which will hit we've hit hit uh, will we'll hit in passing um, he is um, he becomes um, he becomes uh, a he helps with the caravans in Mecca and he is known as an incredibly honest and upright person they call him Alamin. Um, the trustworthy one, the upright one. And um, so he attracts the attention of a, of a woman who, she's a widow, and she's also very wealthy, who hires him to run her caravans. And he, does, he makes such an impression that she actually proposes through a, a, a go-between marriage. Um, so tell, tell them the age difference. The, yes, she, he's 25 and she is 40. 
He's uh, 25. He's 25. She's 40. She's 40. That gives you a little bit of an idea of the ancient Arab culture. Yes. Women were very powerful in ancient Arab culture. <laughs> <laughs> and not all women, point, but right? yes, yes, the wealthy women were. Yes, the wealthy women were quite powerful. Mm-hmm. And he um, has, um, according to the legend, six children with her. We're, we're not exactly sure. Two sons who die and four daughters of which the most well-known has been mentioned several times, Fatima. Um, and she's the only who survives him, right? No, uh, yes. No, I think it's, it, The other daughters does, do died they before, all him? before him? Yeah, I think so. Um, and um, so they, they live very happily um, until Muhammad himself reaches around his 40, 40th birthday. And, He's, he begins around this time, he starts having all of these dreams and visions, and he spends increasing amounts of time um, in what is really the Christian monastic tradition of the desert of going on retreat. Um, specifically in, there's, there are several holy months, and one of them is the holy month of Ramadan. He um, takes a retreat in Ramadan in the year, hold on, uh, 610. And he is meditating towards the end of this um, 30-day period. Um, he's meditating in his, this cave high up in the mountains above Mecca. And suddenly he has this encounter, not dissimilar to the, the encounter of Jacob with the angel, oh. where he wrestles with this incredible being who, who squeezes the breath out of him. Really? And uh, and commands him to recite, and then again he said he he gasps for breath and says I I don't know how to recite I don't know how to read I'm I'm unlettered and again this 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 being squeezes him uh, embraces him and doesn't let him go and again commands him to recite and this happens a third time and he begins to recite the first of what will become the Quran of Revelation when, when he's let go. He's utterly demoralized and terrified. This encounter was earth was shattering, and he runs out. He thinks he's going crazy. He thinks that he's been... Yes, he's possessed by, a, by you know, what, what at the time were sort of the, the demon-like figures in Arabic right. culture, the jinn. And he rushes outside, and on the horizon, (laughs) everywhere he turns, he sees this vast angelic figure. Um, In this, um, in the Islamic tradition, Jibrail or Gabriel. he, who, and we know someone else who had, who had an encounter with um, Gabriel. So he rushes home, and this to me is the most beautiful part of the story, and he throws himself at his wife Khadija's feet and says, cover me. And she, she takes him in her arms, she covers him with a blanket, takes him in her arms and holds him as he shakes. Um, it's, this has just been so incredibly disturbing. And he says, uh, you know, he says, am I, go, am I going crazy? Am I, am I mad? And she says, no, you, have, you, have, you are an upright person who takes care of the poor, who feeds the poor, who um, uh, soothes the oppressed, 
and God would not do this to you, and completely supports him in um, the authenticity of the message that he receives. Um, and uh, this happens to him again and again over wow. the next um, few years, this all, always shattering, always difficult. Um, sometimes he describes it sometimes as a as a bell ringing and the and the words come through. But he begins to recite this incredible poetry. Um, I think um, you know Arabic as um, an incredibly poetic language. He begins to recite this um, amazingly beautiful to the Arabs around him poetry um, that. Um, People hear and can only believe that it comes from the, from the divine. Can I just pause and just say yeah. really quick that there was there was a um, a common practice of people that were kind of like mediums or magicians who would have this kind of um, charismatic thing come over them where they would start um, pronouncing prophecies. And things so so there was definitely like it was very concerning for Muhammad because he didn't want to become one of those people so it was like a really like you know he was very afraid of becoming one of these kind of charismatic um, mediums so to speak so there was it was very controversial at that time for for this practice yeah and you have Christians doing this as well they're early Christians um, who who declare themselves prophets and they receive revelation um, that, that comes through. Uh, I think one of the groups was the Montanists. Does any, do you remember, Susan? The, um, this was a, a group that believed um, they, were, they were prophets and they would receive revelation in a very similar way, including women would receive prophecy in this way. And uh, the church stamped this group out. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's ancient. It's an ancient practice going back. Right. The oracles it, there are oracles and yeah. prophets all over the Bible, obviously. In the Jewish tradition, uh, when, the, when the Hebrew Bible became canon, when it became scripture, uh, a, a notion became predominant in the Jewish world that prophecy had ceased. And that where you would find God's uh, uh, connection to God would be through the text and through the study of Torah. Turn it and turn it, for everything is in it. That is a rabbinic saying, right? And so, prophecy was downplayed in the Jewish community. But this is a human, um, uh, a feature of the human landscape, right? People channel, oracle, prophesy, it's just what part of our brain's antenna to the universe. We don't even know what it is. So, instead, um, an idea emerges that uh, it's not called prophecy, but sometimes famous uh, rabbis and wonder workers are said that they have the Holy Spirit in them, or a divine voice speaks to them, but they won't call it prophecy, which will, in part, be one of the reasons why the Jews reject Muhammad in the Arabian Peninsula, and why he then turns away from them. And why Christians do also, because prophecy, of course, ends with Jesus. 
you know, each group, it ends with them. And prophecy, of course, ended with Baha'i. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. He's the last. So, according to, according to Islam, he's the last. Right. And then for, for the Baha'i, it's Baha'u'llah. Right. So, and for me, it's Derek Jeter. What can I say? But, uh, sorry. Yeah, Derek Jeter. I, anyway, um, which, and then that's, that is a problem. <laughs> it's a big problem. Yeah, and this, this happens with Sufis too, because um, Sufism, like I was saying last week, uh, is each um, silsila, each tariqah is a ishtahad, is an interpretation of the law. Each chain of tradition, each, each chain, chain of transmission, yeah. So with Sufis too, um, our lineage, the Halvati Jirahi from Turkey, we're always teased by Sufis because um, we're kind of like, we say that we were the last Ishtahad, that our, our founding saint was the last uh, founding saint. So a lot of other Sufis tease us about that because they're like, oh, you know, you, you Jirahis, you know, you think you're the best and you have all these divine names and you guys think you're the last Ishtahad, <laughs> which, right. would, which would render all of the other Sufi saints who came after, after our peer uh, null and void. If so, they founded a lineage rather right, than right. right. So then we're faced with this utterly tragic, right. horrible right. situation, which we can also laugh about sometimes, thank God. But we also know has led to a, uh, a an almost unintractable conflict and 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 just horrific amount of killing uh, in the name of us being the last and the best. When I was in rabbinical school, on a lighter note, uh, um, we would and this has continued into modern scholarship, of course. Uh, uh, the the there was a, a in the nineteenth century as the academic study of religion emerged as a real as a field of study uh, Christian scholars used it as a platform to show how Judaism was basically a uh, and Islam I'm sure but I didn't, haven't studied this stuff were are kind of like derelict kind of like they've been replaced they've been replaced they right so the, 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 the religious ideology then then transmutes into scholarly language but still with the same purpose of showing how we're the best. And uh, we then, then the field of Jewish scholarship emerged in response to this. And if you study you know, the history of Jewish scholarship from the 19th century, it's an attempt to say, no, we're, you know, we're better. You know? And uh, so we read so much of this kind of scholarship. It is scholarship, but it's, it's also like annoying. It's so, it's so tendentious. Uh, and so my class of wonderful rabbinic classmates, uh, who I adored, we would get to an article like that, and we would look at each other and say, we did it first, and we did it better. And then we'd move on to the, just as a way of just like saying, okay, that's what that article was about. If you understand what I'm saying, we weren't yeah. proclaiming, we were just saying, oh, okay, can we get to something else now? Um, so, yes, Amy. And so Kathy. what did... Mohammed say that was so, you know, uh, uncomfortable for the Christians and the Jews to accept. Well, it wasn't even so much the Christians and the Jews. It was his fellow Ara Arabians, because, or his fellow, the, the people in Mecca particularly, his family, because he basically, he was basically teaching monotheism. 
and you know that there is only one one God, and that um, all of and 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 uh, you have to understand too the tri tribal feeling was very strong. This is what my father and my father's father and my father's 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 father did, and the and in a, in a sense, it, Muhammad was what he experienced and what Muslims believe is that this was not Muhammad. This was. This was coming from God. This was direct transmission from God. And so the teaching was very upsetting to the polytheistic Arabs. Not so much to the to the you know local Christians and Jews. It, that yeah. it was it was it was it, Muhammad wanted to align himself. Yes, yeah. absolutely. What was upsetting to Christians and Jews most of all was that he was claiming to be a prophet when the Arab prophecy had ended. So the, mono, the, the, monothe the monotheism wasn't problematic. It was, it was to take on that role. Um, then some theological problems do work into play you know, afterwards. But uh, it's that question, can I as a Jew or a Christian accept that there is a prophet you know, after my tradition? And then for everyone else, it's, each tribe had a, had a tribal god. So, you know... Um, Karuna, Kathy wants to ask. Yes. Wasn't Muhammad actually uniquely inclusive? Well, he certainly in, in, he certainly saw that the the ancient prophets, particularly um, you know the the Jewish Torah prophets and Jesus and Mary, were um, you know part of this prophetic lineage of which he you know was a part. So unlike chosen people, or I am the only light, Muhammad was really much more embracing, wasn't he? And, and respectful of other traditions and other prophets, and wanting to bring those. I mean, isn't that a lot? Of can we say that? I, I, yes, you can say that. Let's hear more about that. Right. I mean, so from the Muslim perspective, Adam onwards, all of the prophets are part of Islam, are Muslims are Muslim prophets. It's an unbroken stream of prophecy. So um, that's the Muslim perspective. I think that's more problematic for you know, Christians and Jews than it is for Muslims, because... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Muslims are always like, I don't get it. What's the problem? Like, cause, because they're saying it's an unbroken stream, but... It's like that new kid on the block thing, you know, like, okay, we're like taking, co-opting co mm -hmm. the narratives from earlier. They actually have a couple of extra ones in between Jesus and, um, and, Muhammad? and Muhammad. Who are the extra ones? Sh Sh Shuab and Shuab. Shuab and yeah. um, who, who's the other one? The one with the, the camel. <laughs> so who were they? Were they part of Arabic culture? Yes, they were Arabic. So, so much of that. Muhammad wasn't really trying to start a new religion, just like Jesus was. Oh, that may not be true. Let's hear what religion. you think. Or did he? Well, well, he. It seemed that um, Muhammad saw himself be, because uh, one of the things that Arabs felt very strongly was that well, we don't have a prophet in the same way as the Jews had a prophet or the Christians had a prophet. And so there was a sense of um, uh, maybe not in the beginning, but there was definitely a sense of um, towards his later 
life. There was definitely a sense of this is a different, this is a different religion. It, at first, it seemed as though um, they, there was something called the Hanif, which were people who were neither Jews nor Christians, but they were monotheistic. And um, they were followers of Abraham because Abraham, according to um, Islam, is not a Jew. You don't, you don't, um, you don't, you don't come to Jews until you get the Torah given. So Moses, in Islamic um, ideology, is the first Jew, and his people follow his, um, you know, his law. Um, so uh, these were followers of Ibrahim or Abraham, um, and so there were certain people in this culture who were seen as that. And so he was, in a sense, um, at first, especially aligning himself with the Hanif, the upright ones. Oh wow! So uh, just keep in mind how fluid a situation this is, and how the boundaries are not. Uh, are are porous in this time with all kinds of flavors. Skip. Uh, um, I got the he, he got wed at like twenty five, and then when and then when he was forty, he had the revelation, or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, and he was scared less, and um, then he had the homes and the such. Mm -hmm. At what point did Muhammad think of himself as being a prophet? Well, it's not exactly clear, but as the revelations continue, at first they were just for himself and his small, for the first three years, they were for himself and a small group of followers. And then he was basically told, go out and preach, to, wow. you know, go out and send your message. So it was a sort of a three-year period. Um, and, and what happened then when he started to send the message? Then, that, that, that's when, that's when the, excuse me for my French, but the shit hit the fan. <laughs> he got, got into, this was tremendously controversial in his culture. Um, you're basically, it would be like me coming in to you and saying, I'm sorry, everything you've been doing and, and religiously is wrong, and you need to do something different. And that's essentially what his message was. And, and his tribe, the Quraysh, were like the most powerful tribe. So, of course, they didn't want to be told that they had... And they're, they're making their money yeah. off of all of the pilgrimage, you know. Everyone's coming here to yeah. worship their deities, and so it's a money maker that yeah. every tribe has a god, oh, so and then that's they have why, to come on pilgrimage. Yeah, so they were... They so like, no, 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 that, no, no, no. is that the short answer of why he had to skip town? Uh, that's the short answer. And, and he actually, he actually, um, also one, one other piece, very important. The families, the head of the family um, protects you. The head of your tribe yes. protects you. And in, in the year, I believe it was... Which is true in the Torah, too. It's true of all Middle Eastern... Uh, Bedouin cultures, yeah. I, I believe it's, um, I want to say it's um, six, um, it's around 620. Both his wife, Khadija, who was, I mean, really the love of his life, you can say. And the first uh, believer. She's yes. called the first believer. She's the first Essentially, uh, she, she's the first Muslim, not Muhammad. Yes. Yes. he doubts when she yes. believes. Yes. Uh. She's the first Muslim. She's the mother of, of, of his children. <laughs> with one exception, and she is 
you know, I'm just, she, she's the, you know, the person who supports him, believes in him, supports him both financially and spiritually. And then his, his protector, Abu Talib, his uncle, dies as well. And now he's in real danger. This is called the year of sorrow, 620. Um, in his life, the year of sorrow. So he's 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 actually um, in in grave danger. And there's also a, a boycott of his entire family. That's one of the reasons Khadija dies. Is because there no one's allowed to trade with them. No one's allowed to um, uh, give them any food. No one's allowed to. Um, they're they're isolated. They're they're under this um, ban, according to the tribes in in Mecca. Right. Yes, it's um, and so they're they're incredible. The Muslims are incredibly um, weakened. They're they're having a really hard time. And then, and this is to me, this is the most amazing piece of the story. Then, this incredibly dark, <coughs> depressing, difficult time for Muhammad, and he has the um, another one of his amazing mystical experiences, which is called the Isra and the Mirage, the night journey and the ascent, where he is taken, um, according to the stories, by a, a being with the head of a woman, the body of a horse, and the tail of a peacock, from... Ooh. And the wings of an angel. And the wings of an angel, right, thank you. To, from the, uh, the enclosure in Mecca, all the way to Jerusalem. The, well, it the doesn't farthest, say Jerusalem. It says the farthest. Says, the farthest. Al-Aqsa. Al-Aqsa, the farthest mosque. But traditionally, traditionally, it's seen as Jerusalem, and it's seen as the place, well, it's the Temple Mount, the place where the temple was, but also as the place, I don't know if this is true in Judaism, but it's in um, Islam, it's the place where um, Abraham or Abraham sacrifices Isaac or Ishmael, yes. which Islamic version? <laughs> and that is Mount Moriah, which is traditionally where understood to be the uh, the hill upon which the temple in Jerusalem was built. So here he is. He's been transported in the twinkling of an eye to this, um, by this incredible being, and he stands with all of the prophets and leads them in prayer. Who are the other prophets? Uh, the other prophets From were, the subtle realms, the heavens. Oh, the, oh, yes, the, the other, that are not Adam, John, <coughs> uh, John the Baptist, um, Jesus. Uh, Jesus, Yusuf, Enoch, Id, uh, or Idris in the Moses, Abraham. Moses, Aaron, Abraham, they're all there, they're Mary. all praying, Mary, they're all praying with when him. When Obi-Wan shows up again. And, and so, and he is offered at that point, he's offered three cups, he, one of water, one of milk, and one of wine, and he chooses the milk, and uh, God says, or you chose well, and that is why, according to the according to the story, this is why Muslims don't drink alcohol. What about water? <laughs> well, he, they do drink alcohol. he chose water. the milk. He chose the milk. Oh no! But but they well, do Why drink. is the milk the right one? Mm -hmm. I, I'm just telling it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I only like, work. Like I only work here. <laughs> make that very feminine. 
Maybe that's maybe that is, that is it. Yeah, it's yeah. milk is yeah because yeah. they say the milk of knowledge and right. there's right. kindness. Yeah, and exactly. And it comes through the right. mother and He's, everything. Yeah. Muhammad suckles mm-hmm. from 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 the breast of the divine. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, and he's called the the Ummi prophet, and Ummi is usually translated as unlettered or Gentile, but it's the same word. Um is mother, so it can be the prophet of the mother. Um, mm-hmm. And and there's a, a saying of of Muhammad that paradise is at the feet or under the feet of the mothers. Mm-hmm. So now this is this is half the story. That's the night journey part, but then he begins this ascent into the heavenly realms, and there he re-meets the prophets. And um, now this, there are different versions. I'm just going to, you know, give you the version, one version, but di- and different in the first heaven, he meets Adam. In the second, he meets Jesus and John the Baptist. In the third, Yusuf, who's said to be the most beautiful being Joseph. he's ever, Joseph, sorry. Why is Joseph the most beautiful being? Because the Bible says he was so <laughs> fine looking. Yeah. Yes, he's, he, and he's, he's, you know, his radiance is astonishing. He, he, Enoch or Idris um, is the uh, Islamic version. In the fifth is Aaron, Harun in, in, in Islam. And then sixth is Musa, Moses. And then Ibrahim. Is, is in, in the, the seventh, seventh heaven. heaven. Oh my goodness. Ibrahim is in the seventh heaven. And again. Well, no, it co- seven heavens is part of the cosmology of the whole world, at that, the whole Western world yes. at that point. Okay. Everybody's in. Everyone has seven heavens. Every, seven oh, heavens okay. is how the cosmos is organized. Okay. And so then, one last thing. Then, it, throughout this, his guide has been Jibrael, Gabriel. Throughout this whole journey, Gabriel has been at his side, but then there's a final place, and it's called the Siderate al-Muntaha, or the Lot Tree of the Utmost Boundary, where he passes beyond even the knowledge of, oh. of um, Gabriel. No one else may follow him there. And there he, um, you know, the divine essence is revealed to him. But the funniest part of the story is on the way down, because he receives all this amazing, you know, I mean, this encounter with the divine. Who knows what, what he's encountered, but one of the things that he brings back with him is that his community is instructed to pray 50 times a day. So he gets back to the sixth heaven, and there he encounters Musa, and Musa goes, so... What did your community get? You know, <laughs> oh. no. What? 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 Did, what? How, what? How many prayers? And he tells him, and he said, "There, I know from experience, there is no way your community is going to be able to pray fifty times a day. Go back up and tell, get it reduced." So he, goes, so he goes back up, and he gets it reduced by ten. He goes back down to, to Moses, and Moses says. You gotta be kidding. <laughs> Forty times a day is not happening. Go back up and talk to God again. So he goes back and he does this several times until finally he's down to What the story does this remind you of? Abraham <laughs> negotiating with God about the righteous in Sodom. So it's that beautiful motif. 
So he goes back and, and he finally gets it down to five times a day. And Moses says, you've got this. I, I'm telling you, I'm, I work with the community. <laughs> I, know what, I know what it's like. They're not going to be able to do it five times a day. And, and Mohammed says, I just can't go back. Anymore. <laughs> I'm too embarrassed. I can't go back. So this is, again... Where do we read this story? We read this in the Hadith. In the Hadith. Many, many different pieces. Pull, this is pulled from many different Hadith. Wow. This is, this is the... So that is why, if you ever wondered why Muslims pray five times a day, this is one explanation. <laughs> What is the... It seems that the Lord talking about journey... Oh, oh shh. Hold on, we can't hear you. Just one sec. Go ahead. Um, what you're describing is describing journeys and, and experiences and so on, but is there any kind of particular message, um, doctrine, anything like that, that we associate with other kinds of religions? Certainly. Uh, absolutely. That, that getting it, and I think um, one very strong message in the Quran that is besides monotheism um, and besides really focusing your attention on what it is that God wants um, is this incredible um, commitment to social justice. Um, Muhammad's experience as both someone who is torn between the desert and the city and also his experience as an orphan um, has leads this message to come through as um, an incredible uh, affirmation of the need to take care of the weakest members of the community. That's and, true of Christianity and Judaism. Yes. yes, it is. And there's also, it, it's, it's actually an incredibly feminist religion, certainly for the time. There are many passages about divorce, about marriage, about the way you treat, uh, men and women treat each other, and there's a, it's a very even-handed, um, uh, and when you think also that one of the early surahs, which is actually the in the last part, is a condemnation of the Arabic practice of burying the baby girls. Um, very powerful and poetic um, way of describing the last day when the baby girls rise up and say, why, why were we killed? It's a, it's a picture of um, the voices of these, um, these baby, baby girls um, uh, who have been killed and are, are basically asking the, the, the creator and the people who did this deed, confronting them in the, in the Quran. It's very, um, very much um, uh, the, the commitment to generosity, the commitment to, if you have been gifted with more than your fellow human beings, you have an obligation. And that there's also this notion that this is a test and that anything really that happens to you is a test of your, whether it's riches or whether it's whatever situation you're put in, is, 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 a, is a test of your taqwa, your God consciousness. And riches or poverty. Riches or poverty. Mm -hmm. and, that, 
as a as a, someone who is being tested as a rich person, you have an obligation in no uncertain terms to use that wealth to benefit your community. So prior to this time of, of intense mercantilism, would there have been opportunities to put together the kind of wealth that was now coming from, from a kind of globalism and trade? You know, like the words of Jesus, the words of Moses, the words of Muhammad. It seems like there's a very interesting parallel to a cabinet full of billionaires to me. Um, there is a parallel. So, but Kathy, what I want to reflect on, uh, transcending um, social political, is that there seems to be a theme that I'm, that seems very clear to me about, and I'm not saying that, uh, about these monotheistic um, uh, traditions. That, and this is not, I'm not saying this unlike those other traditions. I'm saying, I'm just trying, I'm just putting dots together about Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Number one is a visionary journey where the one true essence, one true God is revealed. And in return from that journey comes a moral law. Right? That's what monotheisms have in common, I would say, uh, especially. And the moral law is that we're all created in God's image, and therefore, the weakest among us need to be, the strongest need to protect the weakest mm -hmm. and treat them with dignity and uplift them. Uh, uh, that's one of the things that I'm hearing consistent with the, uh, on all these visionary journeys uh, that, that we're experiencing. Moses hears the word to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. You know, the, 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 the totally disempowered. And Jesus' obviously most famous sermons are all about... Um, uh, remembering the weakest. Right. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, right. water Which to is, the thirsty. Right. Uh, so, I, I don't know. Did you want to add something, Rabbi? I just wanted to say that um, it's important to remember that Islam at the time of the Prophet was really about the life of the Prophet. That the early Muslims were trying to emulate and follow the Prophet closely. So he, Muhammad was called the walking Quran because really he was the embodiment of the Quran. That's all, the, all these people had was his example. And um, if you go to a mosque, you'll sometimes see men when they come in to the mosque, they'll like wash their hands and feet like you have to and then they'll roll up their pant leg and they'll put one pant leg up higher than the other. That's because the Prophet Muhammad did that. Like the, the, le the degree in Muslims of um, emulation, it, even to this day, is, is pretty phenomenal. It's, it's like, you know, it's beyond me. It's sometimes I'm just like, wow, you know. <laughs> That's really, you know, the, the central focus. So it's, it's, it's really, you know, important to keep that in mind. That and the hadith, like we were saying, you had the Quran, which were the revelations that were coming. So as the prophet was going through his life and through his days, incidents would happen with his wives or with his companions or the early Muslims, people who would come to his house and have interactions. Every day, his house was completely open. It was an open door policy. You could come and go and ask questions. He was just there. 
And so people would come and things would happen and, and he would have interactions and then a revelation would come. He would be given a revelation by God because that's, that's what Muslims believe, that these were revelations. That was specifically for that particular incident. Um, so really the Quran is like all of these revelations that are coming according to think, uh, things that were happening in the Prophet's life. Specific situations. Specific right. situations. And individuals. Exactly. And then the oral history, the Hadith, there were people around the Prophet, his companions, uh, who were constantly memorizing um, incidences, again, from the Prophet's life, and, and saying, like, okay, this person came to ask the Prophet a question, and he answered it this way. So that, that's a Hadith. Now, that, that became codified. So the prophet answers this way. That's a that's a judgment. So Islamic law comes from the Quran and the Hadith. So that's that's. Do you know? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not like I think it's very different in in some ways because it's it is so very different. Yes. On the prophet's life, like uh-huh. everything stems from the prophet's life. So that explains to me why you two said we have to talk about the life of Muhammad, and I didn't know why. Uh huh. And, and I think the other thing that is that you should know about the Prophet is how incredibly beloved he is. Um, just in terms of, I mean, imagine emulating, there are, there are people who insist on brushing their teeth like, yes. like the Prophet. There are people who insist on dressing only in the way that they think that the Prophet dressed. There's this body of, um, but he was, he was seen as just this incredibly kind, generous, open-hearted, beautiful, magnetic being. Wow. And so there, there was, and they'll talk about his, both his physical, the physical aspects of him. Many of the Hadith will talk about his radiance. They'll talk about his, he was just, he was just an incredibly magnetic human being. And so there's this very deep devotion and love for the Prophet in, um, not all Islam, I should should say, because the Salafis, the Salafis and the Wahhabis come along, and that that's really de-emphasized. <laughs> but a lot of the traditional, what what we think of as Muslim traditions, I won't even say that they're necessarily the prophets. Uh, I have something in the glossary about the prophet Sunnah. Um, these are things that the prophet did and the thing, things that the prophet taught. But then there's also the, the Sunnah with the small s, or the way, which is what was customary at the time of the Prophet. And there's a little bit of, and, and there are a lot of hadith that contradict each other. Yeah. Or they contradict, specifically contradict what the Prophet taught, what the Quran taught. So when we say, you know, uh, you know Muslims do, do this, or Muslims do that, you know, there's it, there's not a mono it's not a monoculture. There's a lot of different ways of interpreting it. But I think the thread running through them all is that people feel as though they're it's almost like in, in imitatio uh, Christi, um, the imitation of Christ, um, but in a in a very detailed way. I mean, nobody's worried about I don't think in Christianity. How Jesus brushed his teeth. Exactly. Uh, Teeth brushing is an extremely important thing in Islam. I'll jump to his death, where that's the last act. Oh, oh, really? You were just choosing that out of a whole bunch of possibilities? No. A miswatch no. stick. It's an actual 
Yes, it's a, it's actually so. Um, it, it's a it's a well, very big deal. The, the life of Muhammad for a Muslim um, is, um, is 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 with, incredibly. With your indulgence, everybody. Um, I, would you tell us what happens when he goes to Medina, just so we hear more? So I'm, we're both hearing his biography and also his spiritual journey mm -hmm. and how all of that frames what Islam becomes is what I'm hearing. Yes, yes. So would you tell us more about uh, what happens in Medina? So there's an assassination attempt and the prophet is, well, now he's lost his protector. He's forced to flee. Uh, sorry. I'll just give you the date, because this is actually a very important date. The Hijra is um, uh, 622, which is where the Muslim cal calendar begins. Oh. 622 And what year is his CD. night journey? His night journey is 619. Oh, so, so a couple years later. That's the night journey. It might just quick note there is that it becomes the template for the mystical journey for for all of Everything. for everyone. You know, that model of, of ascent. Yeah, it's not just something he does, it's something that everyone then does internally. You make that same journey and, of ascent. And some 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 say both I've heard both that the that prayer is a mirage for the ordinary Muslim, the five times a day prayer. And also that the Silsala is the is the mirage of, of the Sufi. That okay. that that but so that but the physical journey he actually we are certain that he took is from Mecca to Medina. He's invited by some tribesmen in Medina, or Yathrib as, as it's called, to come to, to move and to um, uh, be like kind of like a mediator um, uh, between them. He's, uh, a um a judge. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh -huh. and, a magistrate or a, yes. a, a and, adjudicator. And so he, he the, uh, several, there's this plot to assassinate him one night, and he flees. Um, he's followed. He, he actually winds up going south before he goes north. Um, but he winds up, um, and he's sent on his whole community. Has, has gone essentially before him. And so when he finally gets to Medina, he's greeted with great love. There's a legend about his camel choosing the place where he's going to live. I, I want, I, I'm gonna cut to the chase here. But then in Medina, 622, he dies in 632. So for 10 years, he is now the, the chief political figure in um, Medina, and he is essentially now dealing with much less of an internal spiritual interior life and much more of an outward, um, that this is when he's, he's um, uh, keeping open house, he is making um, ma many marriages um, that have to do with alliances with other people, um, he's uh, negotiating with different um, tribes in the area, out of the area. The, Medi the Meccans attack him. He's uh, commanding armies. So it, it, his life really changes in those wow. last 10 years. Then I want to reflect on, on what I've heard. and I'm, I'll just keep using my bully pulpit here to, 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 
do the talking. Um, so I knew about the political origins of Islam in this regard, about what I never got to hear was the story of Muhammad's spiritual life and his spiritual journey and how Muslims also model themselves, uh, uh, not all Muslims, but you know, those who are, who have, are tuned to that station, um, on uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a map for a spiritual ascent as well as for a, both a behavioral program and a political program. And it all emerges from his life. Is that a fair thing to say? Yes. And what I didn't know about, um, even though I've got, well, it's no surprise. I mean, my, my introductions to Islam are mostly very academic, where the spiritual journeys are completely like, whatever. He had a, <laughs> and then that night he had a dream, you know. Um, uh, but for those who care about spiritual journeying and who feel that it's a significant part of the human experience, um, it allows me to understand the more, just to get a sense of what the interior life of a seeking Muslim might be in the template. Stuff I didn't know anything about. Does that make and, sense, everybody? Yeah. Yeah. And he actually had a very deep spiritual practice. There's a beautiful um, surah in the Quran called um, the, the Enwrapped One, where it's said, where God tells him, you're, you know, sit up at night and recite the Quran in a clear, beautiful, voice for maybe a third, maybe a half, maybe two-thirds of the night. Um, and sort of in, and he would spend much of his night in prayer. Um, and then uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful surah and, and, and his community is encouraged to do the same thing. And then there's, and it's all very poetic and beautiful. And then there's a last verse, a very long verse it says, but, and this, is a, is a later Medinian um, addition. But for those of you who are, you know, uh, involved in political issues, involved in war, involved in, you know, trade, you do what's easy for you. <laughs> uh -huh. you're, you're, we're not holding you to this standard That's of spiritual. Yes. Uh -huh. That's added yes. later? That's added later. And it's not, it's, now it's in prose. Now it's, uh, you know, the language completely shifts. Yeah. Do you want to add I something, wanted Rabia? to just add that um, that one of the stories from the Prophet's life is how he would rise in the middle of the of the night for the tahajjud ta prayers that you're mm -hmm. speaking about, um, but he would do them in bed, and his and there's a story where his <coughs> wife Aisha would be sleeping in bed with him, and and as he was doing his his salat prayer, she would move her legs for him. So. That kind of goes against like a lot of what you think of Muslim, you know, <laughs> gender relation relations. It shows that the uh, that the Prophet Muhammad really his uh, his relationship to women was like extremely different than what we see today in, uh, in the Muslim world. So, and we can get more into that later because yes. we're going right. to talk about gender we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, so, so we're left with the conundrum, which yeah. is that Christianity. <laughs> preaches love, and launches crusades. <laughs> Islam has this sublime center to it, right, that I'm learning about today, and becomes a religion of conquest soon, quick, right, uh, after his, uh, it, and, and Judaism, um, you know, we're, no, we're, we're in the same boat. So, um, 
I, I, I hear that, that question, but I want to articulate it because the question sits there, right? And uh, we'll talk more about it, yes? Wow. Um, Do we have time to find out about his death? We have time to hear the one-minute version. Okay. And then, but then we're going to finish by chanting. Yes. So um, the prophet becomes ill, um, I think, I believe he's in his 63rd year. Um, he is, you know, according to the stories, he's given the option of, re you know, returning to the one or, you know, staying amongst his community. And at this point, he, you know, is just ready to go. Um, he uh, has a long illness, and by this time he has 12 different, more or less 12 different wives, or, um, and he spends one night in each one, but they all agree at, at, in his final illness that he, he may stay in the house of his um, beloved Aisha, um, who, who, um, who actually is, um, was his favorite at the time, wife. And um, he, uh, at one point, he um, ar arises and he goes to the mosque and Abu Bakr is leading the prayer and makes way for the prophet, but the prophet says, no, continue. And um, after that, he collapses and is brought back to Aisha's um, arms and uh, his, her house and dies in her arms of some unspecified illness. Um, but his last act is to, to, to um, brush his teeth. <laughs> oh. <laughs> one of his last acts. That's so great. One, is, one of his last acts is to, you know, clean his mouth with a toothstick. And uh, that's actually a very important part of um, cleaning. Uh, We're all licking evolution. our teeth right now. Evolution is, an act, is a very important part of um, Islamic practice. For the Irish, it was the tongue. It's a lot of. It's a very important thing. The mouth is where the sounds of God comes from. It's where you express your heart because you can't lie with what you say at the moment. You can. So it's a very beautiful thing, really. I mean that they made it so literal, of course, but that the mouth. Right, it cleans his mouth. It's very important. Right, right, right. Are there, are there any water rituals? We're going to run out of time. You have to save that one. Yes. Uh, Matthew, unfortunately for us. Fortunately for him, has another amazing thing he's got to do next week. Oh. Sorry. Oh. No, tell him. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to go into it right now. But okay, but he'll tell us when he gets back. Yeah. When he gets back, um, you'll be in suspense. Could, could I just ask one question, that, and then I'll make it really, really brief. Can we at some point talk about, about these prophets as intermediaries between the people and God, and this emulation becoming sort of a deification? Overtly or not? Good question. Yes. Oh my God, that's yes. a great one. Yeah, yeah. Good. Very good. Rabia, would you lead us again? Sure. So everyone, <sighs> do this. <sighs> one of the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad is that paradise is among the circles of remembrance. When people gather in a circle, and, and yeah. chant the names of God, uh, engage in, in, in remembrance that, that paradise is there, um, that the garden is brought near. Yeah, and the angels, angels are going around the world looking for those gatherings. So. Oh. And thank you, Corinne, for that incredible storytelling. I love that. I learned so much.
Oh, um, do you want to do hi, hi, who, maybe? Yes. Oh, yeah, sure. Yes. That's a living one. Hi, is hi who, who is living. That's easy. Hi, hi, who. Hi, 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 be blessed with our own ascent through the seven heavens and return with gifts. Amen. 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 Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Wow.